This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, Ange McCormack with you, filling in for Dave Marchese on the Hack podcast. Really big episode coming up for you today. We're talking about how expensive it is to go to the doctor and how lots of you are skipping appointments because you just can't afford it. Plus, influencers are getting in trouble again, this time for advertising tanning oils and products that make you tan faster in the sun. We know that there's nothing healthy about a tan, so to protect us from skin cancer, should we ban those products or at least ban ads for them on social media? We'll get to those stories in a moment. First, though, some big news in Sydney today. Hack. Hell was someone who said, God said Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. He said that being gay was worse for your health than smoking. On Triple J. The funeral of Cardinal George Pell was held at St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney today. Protesters clashed with mourners, three people were arrested, and there were plenty of high-profile attendees at the funeral, including some former PMs. George Pell was Australia's most senior Catholic. He died last month from heart complications after a surgery. And in 2020, George Pell's convictions for historical child sexual abuse were overturned by the High Court after he'd spent 400 days in jail. Kathleen Calderwood is a reporter for ABC News in New South Wales. She was covering the funeral today. Kathleen, we'll get to the funeral in a sec, but let's talk about the clash between protesters and mourners. What happened there? So tensions had actually been building now for a couple of days. People might be familiar with the loud fence movement, which uh, where people tie ribbons on, on the fences of church to acknowledge and remember uh, victim survivors of abuse at the hands of clergy. So that had been happening for a few days at St Mary's Cathedral. The ribbons had had been taken down quite a few times um, and then put back up. Last night, a group of mourners actually came uh, came to the cathedral and cut a lot of those ribbons off the fence again and there was quite an angry clash there between uh, them and some protesters and there were some homophobic slurs thrown around as well. Uh, so the protest that was held today was organised by LGBT activists and it had been able to go ahead across the road from the cathedral. Uh, it was quite large, maybe two to three hundred people. And as it came at its sort of closest point to where the funeral was, there was a very angry angry clash between them and some mourners there. Um, A lot of, you know, uh, words being thrown around, mm. you know, sort of... Uh, got that, a bit heated. Yeah, it got yeah. really heated and there was a, the police were there keeping them separate, but a certain group of mourners were really yelling quite, you know, Full on things at the protesters um, and the and at the police as well, asking them to move them on because at that point the funeral had just started. There was some loud um, sort of choraling and uh, organ music that was playing, mm. and as the protesters came part past, their sort of chants and rallying cries were drowning out that that music. Yeah, so right. really, yeah, it got quite heated there. As you say, there were three people arrested, um, but they were all moved on without charge. And what, so we had a couple of different sort of groups of communities represented in the protests um, that were held today. What what messages were they trying to send at the funeral today? So... There, as I say, it was organised by LGBTIQ represent, uh, activists and representatives and there were a lot of things that they brought up. Uh, George Pell was a 
widely known, strong conservative. He was a very powerful man in the country and he really spoke out against a lot of, uh, you know, progressive values like uh, gay marriage, abortion, divorce. Um, and they so they were speaking really against that, but they were also speaking against what they say was his protection of the Catholic Church at the expense of uh, victim survivors. And it's worth saying that the Royal Commission did find that George Pell knew about abuse by priests as early as the 70s and considered ways of avoiding to provoke gossip about it, although he did reject that finding. So here's a bit of one of the organisers, Eddie Stevenson. And who, as the architect of the Melbourne response to abuse within the church, spent more money on lawyers to defend the church than on compensation for victims of abuse. Mm, Yeah, there was a lot of anger and emotions at Mm. the protest and at the funeral today. And and on the funeral, you know, it was massive. There was hundreds of mourners and there were some really high-profile attendees as well. What what was the funeral like and what was said about George Pell there? As you'd expect, it was a pretty sombre affair. Um, And once that, uh, the protests moved on and that all heated, uh, that all calmed down a little bit. It was, you know, a pretty sort of, as you'd expect of a funeral affair. It went on um, with the usual Catholic mass. It actually went on for two and a half hours. So it was quite a long event. Um, And there was about a thousand people inside the cathedral, but there were also hundreds outside as Mm. well, watching on screens that had been set up in the courtyard. So, Pell, uh, George Pell was remembered uh, by the Sydney Archbishop as a, a lion of the church, saying he'd made an invaluable contribution to the Catholic Church in Australia and remarking on his ascension from a young priest in Ballarat all the way to the Vatican. And we also heard um, from George Pell's brother as well, David, who spoke about uh, his love of horse racing and, and Aussie rules. Um, and we, we also heard from the Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott. Yeah, what did Tony Abbott say at the funeral today? So he uh, offered one of the eulogies, actually, and he was known as a very close associate of George Pell's. He called him the greatest Catholic Australia has ever produced, also saying he was a great friend and a hero. But he spent a lot of time, uh, as did um, the other speakers, remarking on uh, George Pell's 400 days in prison. He received several rounds of applause as he discussed uh, how he thought he should never have been investigated or charged and that he really felt he'd been a scapegoat for the sins of others in the Catholic Church. The the death of George Pell has been really difficult for victims and survivors of clergy abuse and also for the LGBTQI community as we've been talking about. Did you get a sense of how those communities are feeling now that the funeral is over, if there's a sense of closure there or or what? how they Mm. felt today? I think it'd be fair to say that anyone who is particularly from uh, a community of victim survivors, whether they are one themselves or someone has a close family or friend who is, I think they'd be really relieved that this event is over. It's been really triggering for a lot of people over the last couple of weeks since George Pell died. Um, Obviously, it was extremely upsetting for a lot of people when ribbons have been cut down and there was a lot of uh, talk about that today. I think the other thing that protesters were remarking on a lot was uh, while, you know, George Pell hasn't really been a very big figure in Australia now for a few years in terms of his own values and and sort of speaking them about them in the political arena, they made the comment that, you know, there, there is this debate going on about religious discrimination and religious freedoms and and how that can interact with other civil liberties. So really, I guess, um, you know, trying to 
get home that there's more of their cause that they, the fight is not over for their cause. There's still more things that they want to keep attention on. Um, and it was remarked a, a number of times that the leader of the opposition, Peter Dutton, had attended. Um, and obviously that brought up a lot of, you know, political discussion as well. Mm, absolutely. Well, Kathleen, thanks so much for speaking with me today and for covering this story. Thanks, Anne. That's Kathleen Calderwood there. She's a reporter for ABC News. Of course, if this has raised anything for you, Lifeline is available on 13 11 14. Hi. There were so many times where I was due, you know, for a follow-up and I just felt, listen, like I don't have the 380 right now. On Triple Jack. When you're waiting for your next payday, the budget's tight, what's the first thing you try and save money on? I know for a lot of you listening, you often have to ditch the most important stuff. Skipping appointments with your doctor, dentist or psych is sometimes the only option when you're low on cash. A report today found this kind of thing is on the rise. The number of Australians missing or delaying doctor visits because they can't afford it went up 50% in the last year. Does that sound familiar? Have you had to put off getting healthcare because it's too expensive? Call me 1300 055536 or text in 0439 757555. Shalila Medora has more on this story. You know, I could have to see the doctor three times in one week. You know, as we're looking at nearly $100 there. As Jessica Peters from Nam Melbourne explains, having a chronic illness like endometriosis is incredibly expensive. You know, I'm going to have a gynecologist a week, a pelvic floor physio a week, a dietitian a week. They're all around approximately the same prices. So realistically, you're looking at like $600 out of pocket a week if you use all the resources that are available. But it's just, it's unrealistic. The cost of everyday essentials like food, fuel, housing and energy have skyrocketed over the last 12 months. And it's meant Jess has found herself skipping follow-ups with her GP, even when her pain is really bad. I don't have that $64 to go see a doctor, so my only choice is to just sit at home and like put up with it. What Jess is describing is becoming more and more common. According to a report by the Productivity Commission, there's been a 50% increase in people delaying or avoiding seeing their doctor because it costs too much. And as you know, rates of mental illness have spiked heaps since COVID. But despite that, people are finding it difficult to get help. When it comes to the proportion of people holding off or not seeking professional help for their mental health due to cost, the Productivity Commission figure came in at close to 22% nationally. And in some parts of the country, people are waiting more than four years to see a publicly funded dentist. We went to the election very clearly hearing the message from Australians that it has never been harder to see a doctor than it is right now. Health Minister Mark Butler acknowledged that the healthcare system is in a bit of a mess. He says that's because the previous government didn't increase the rebates doctors get to bulk bill, causing more and more health professionals to abandon it. And out-of-pocket costs are driving people to visit their local emergency rooms instead. Uh, we know that around half of all presentations to emergency departments around the country, including here in WA, are classified as non-urgent or semi-urgent. On top of that, 5% of people aren't getting their scripts filled because it costs too much. Steve Mason from the Australian Patients Association said lowering the cost of medicine on the pharmaceutical benefits scheme has helped. The federal government has reduced the co-payment from $42.50 down to $30, effective from the 1st of January. But he says it's not enough. We're advocating they need to go further and hopefully 
reduce the co-payment down to as low as $19.50. Cassandra Goldie from the Australian Council of Social Services says people on JobSeeker and Youth Allowance are the hardest hit by cost of living pressures. People on low and fixed incomes, including people on income support, have been trading off their health care to try and keep a roof over their head and to feed themselves. I don't have the money aside on a week-to-week basis to afford a GP, so I often spend several weeks, sometimes unfortunately several months, saving up. Sam is a student from Ngunnawal, Canberra. He gets support payments while he's studying. While he's able to occasionally see a GP, his money just doesn't stretch far enough for specialist appointments. There's problems with my mental health that I currently haven't been able to properly address. I don't think I reasonably have the money aside to go to a dentist. I I don't really have enough money aside for Listerine and dental floss. Sam says he wishes there were more bulk build options so that people don't have to wait months or years for the options that currently are available. Because he knows that not seeking help now could have consequences later on. I worry about what this is going to mean later in my life. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. Shalila Madora reporting there. On the Triple J text line, someone says, I'm chronically ill and private health doesn't cover my neuro appointments. Medicare barely helps. It costs hundreds each month. Well, we asked the Health Minister, Mark Butler, to come on Hack and speak to you about this. He wasn't available today. But let's get a doctor's perspective on this. Hash Abdeen is the chair of the AMA Council of Doctors in Training. Hash, thanks so much for coming on today. Australia's meant to have this free, universal access to healthcare. It's what makes us, you know, different to countries like America. But now we're hearing so many stories about people not being able to afford to get help when they're sick. What's gone wrong? Thanks, Anne, for having me. Uh, I mean, really, it's very similar to what Sam's story has been. There are many people in situations where they can't access their GP or a bulk billing GP that they can afford. And that's really leading to lots of issues around access to care when preventable diseases can be happening. Uh, I'm a junior doctor and we're seeing it across the state uh, where there's been increasing hospital admissions and presentations because people can't access their GP for things that could have been preventable if, you know, their blood pressure had been checked earlier or their mental health had been looked into a bit earlier and they're not in this acute crisis stage. And this is burdening not only the primary healthcare setting, but also the hospitals, which we know if anyone presented to an ED right now, the waiting lists are extremely long. Mm, Yeah, I was going to say, so, you know, it's not just about the health impacts of obviously avoiding going to the doctor is a bad health outcome for someone who needs help, but it's, it then flows on to the hospitals, you know, being slammed in the EDs because everyone's just showing up there, right? That's, that's the, the kind of next stage of this issue, isn't it? You're completely right, and it's a knock-on effect, isn't it? And we're seeing the pressures on hospital beds where we're having to cancel elective surgery, and that's another big issue that we know that has come out in the Productivity Commission report today um, around, you know, if you don't have a, a hospital bed, you can't perform a surgery, and we know people are waiting for hip replacements, knee replacements in chronic pain, and that's a really draining um thing to be in pain for so long and not have that opportunity to have the surgery that you've been waiting for so long. And COVID has obviously exacerbated all of this tenfold. 
You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack, filling in for Dave Marchese today. I'm talking with Dr Hash Abdeen from the AMA on this story about so many of us having to skip healthcare appointments because of the cost. On the Triple J text sign, Sarah and Redfern, you say, I need to see a periodontist for gum for a gum infection with a loose tooth. I was quoted $300 for the consult only. That's a lot when, you know, things are really tight at the moment. Someone else says, I ended up going off the pill because it was too difficult and costly to get to my GP when my script ran out. Uh, Dr. Hash, uh, one of the texters there just mentioned dental work, which is a really big issue. Dental generally isn't covered by Medicare and the you know, majority of dentists in Australia are private and there's very few bulk billing dentists. The report today said wait lists for them can be like four years long. What's the health risk of putting off the dentist specifically? It's much more than just, you know, bad breath or bad looking teeth, right? You're completely right, and we know that um, dental hygiene can lead to lots of different issues. Um, I'm a rheumatology trainee, and there are a lot of autoimmune conditions that we know can be related to dental hygiene, but a lot of other cardiovascular increased risks as well from poor hygiene as well. And so these are just not just, I guess, oral health that we're talking about. We're talking about the person's overall health that this can impact. Um, So it's really significant, and we see this time and time again in the public hospital system where people are on huge waiting lists, as you mentioned, more than four years sometimes to get the dental need work that they need. And what advice do you have for people right now listening to this who are in this exact situation? They might have called up an appointment or, you know, a doctor or a psych or a dentist today to say, sorry, I can't make it because they can't afford it. Are there free services out there that we just don't know about? What's your message to them if they're, you know, considering or have had to put off an appointment like that? I mean, my advice is to try and find the person that will be right for you. Um, Obviously, that means you're in your financial situation and that will take some time to talk to and find people on there. There are online services that do help find a GP um, that is available in different states and territories as well. I mean, ultimately, I think this is a... um, an issue with Medicare and the rebates Mm. that we've been getting for such a long time. And I think if you're an individual person, you have the right to talk to your politician, your local politician, and lobby them. All levels of government should be involved in this to really, uh, I guess, get Medicare right. Because ultimately what we can see and what Sam's talked about is the future, the future of young Australians not having universal health care and access to this, which is a serious concern yeah, and for everybody. I, yeah, on the on the Medicare rebate issues, we've been talking about mm. them a lot on Hack in the past couple of months. Is that the biggest issue at hand here, the fact that so many uh, fewer GPs are being able to bulk bill because of this Medicare rebate being so low? If you were, you know, in charge of this whole system, let's just say, is that what you would go after first in terms of fixing that system, allowing more doctors to bulk bill because that's the first primary care point of contact for everyone. Yeah, I think it's one of the biggest issues in terms of that underfunding, that chronic underfunding and undervaluing of general practitioners and the primary healthcare space. I mean, if you're thinking about the rebate in itself, um, it, it's only, it hasn't changed in many, many years and only went up 61 cents, I believe, um, only last year, which is hardly anything. And if you think any of you have a small business, you know how challenging it can be to run a small business, particularly through COVID. And we know the impact of COVID on healthcare workers across the board. I think what it really shows is that undervaluing and funding is 
impacting junior doctors' choices on professional careers. We see less and less interest in general practice um, for both medical students and general Mm. um, junior doctors. And that's a big concern when we have a huge supply issue when we don't have enough GPs, both in metropolitan areas, but really if we think about our regional and remote communities, how little and how how much they struggle to even get a GP out there. So I think this is really one of those things where... um, you know, undervaluing, underfunding is leading to disinterest from junior doctors, and which is a big concern for the Australian community. Dr. Hash Abdeen, thanks so much for joining me today and speaking with me about this really important issue. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. That's Dr. Hash Abdeen from the AMA there on the Triple J text line. So many texts about this coming in right now. Someone says, I need to see so many expensive specialists that it's not even an option to consider due to the cost. Hi. Girls. Let me put you on the best tanning oil for your holidays. On Triple Jack. Have you seen ads for tanning products like suntan oil on your social media lately? Summer's here, and even though we know that there's nothing healthy about a tan and that melanoma is the most common cancer for young people in Australia, companies are still promoting tanning products like crazy. Some advocates are saying enough is enough. It's time to ban ads and marketing for tanning products. Do you think ads for tanning products like oils or creams with no SPF should be banned? Or should we actually just ban those products altogether? Let me know what you think about this one. 0439 757555. Melissa Mason is a writer and podcast host. She started a petition this week to ban ads for tanning products. Melissa, thanks so much for speaking with me. What made you start this petition this week? Hey, yeah. So I basically was looking into the rise of suntan culture, which was something that a podcast called Outspoken had touched on. And they'd sort of profiled a few different influencers who had um, put up pictures of them with, you know, potentially having burns on their chests or, or with tanning products in the pictures or talking about suntanning. And I was writing about that and then that got me into like a rabbit hole on social media, Mm. as always happens. (laughs) And I ended up finding all of these brands that were selling tan accelerants, so products that you put on your skin to like specifically to go and lay out in the sun and enhance a tan from not, UV. Not, not fake exposure. tan, to be clear. Not fake tanning, yes. no. They're, they're designed to work with UV exposure. Yeah. And that was weird to me because, like, I grew up through the tanning is skin cells in trauma ads, which are mm. now, like, I think 12 years old, so quite, quite a while ago. But um, I was always terrified of the sun once I started seeing those ads. And I saw just that I don't think we're scared anymore. And I feel like I was just coming across so many um, of these brands with huge followings, putting out all of this, you know, pro sun tanning content, like videos of how to get a better tan from the sun and like enhancing your tan lines, all of that kind of stuff. And so I was really concerned about what I was seeing. And I felt like there was a gap here in regulations on what you could, how you could market these products and advertise these products without warnings. Mm, yeah. So what are you calling on the health department to do here? What, what, what do you think could be a solution to, to stop the encouragement of tanning um, like these ads and social media posts are telling people to do? Well, I think that it's never going to be the case that we can ban these products. I mean, maybe we could, that'd be great. But I I also think it's less to me about what individuals are doing in their own time and more the fact that these can just run, these, these brands can freely advertise in so many like 
bizarre ways that I've seen, like I saw one brand that had put up, you know, a post that said, you know, you can wear SPF with our products, but that doesn't really like mean much because that's great. Obviously wearing SPF is amazing, but you know, the cancer council guidelines are beyond just SPF and beyond just sunscreen. You know, you're, you're wanting to seek shade and cover up and wear a hat and all of these other factors that are, go into protecting yourself from skin cancer. And particularly when your product is about lying in the sun under UV, like in the UV rays to get a tan. If you're wearing SPF over that, that's just probably going to prolong how long you're lying out in the sun anyway before your skin tans, right? So I kind of, what I really want to see from the health department is to take this as seriously as they have taken smoking. Because like we said, we know that melanoma has, we have the highest rate in the world. We have, you know, one of the highest rates of skin cancer in the world. And 95% of melanomas are caused by overexposure to UV rays. So these are products literally designed to push people into the UV rays and they're just running like undetected. Mm. We've got, we're getting some texts coming in that I'd like to get your reaction on. Some people are saying like, let people do their own thing and back off, you know, like if they want to use these products, so be it. What, what do you say to that kind of criticism? Well, yeah, use the products. Like this is the thing you can't, you, I, I don't think you can really police what Stand people the do with their own bodies. Mm. Um, so I'm not really saying to individuals, don't go and do this. I personally am not doing this. I don't think you should do this, but I'm not a governing body who can tell you that. I do think though that, you know, we've, we saw the TGA kind of crack down on sunscreen in the way that sunscreen has been marketed and advertised by influencers. And so it's wild to me that we have those restrictions in place around a product that, you know, is designed to protect us from skin cancer and obviously is one of many factors but we don't have that around these tan accelerants. Right. So you're thinking about something maybe like, you know, on alcohol advertising, it's like drink responsibly or, or whatever, like that kind of messaging could even go a long, a long way for those tanning products maybe. I think so, yeah, but I also would want to go further than that. Like sure. you don't see cigarette ads anymore, right? Like That's you true. can't yep. market your cigarettes out here like they're making like with this healthy lifestyle and you know all those weird 70s ads of like people mm. on boats smoking and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, you can't do that anymore. Yeah, I, and- I, yeah, I, I want to bring in um, Craig Sinclair here. He's the head of prevention at Cancer Council, Victoria. Craig, what do you think about this whole debate? Thanks for joining us, by the way. But do you think there should be more regulation of tanning products in Australia? Yes, thanks, Ange, and, and thanks, Melissa, for, for your wonderful work. Look, any product, as Melissa has so well explained, that increases the likelihood of harm, which these products do, definitely deserve the attention of government. And clearly we have a um, a commercial opportunity being presented to consumers here where people are profiteering at the expense of harm to themselves. And it's one thing individuals making choices to use them, that that is their choice, but they're making it often in the vacuum of knowledge of the harm that they're doing. So these products are certainly accelerating not only the skin ageing process, but accelerating the skin damage process. And that only adds to our risk of skin cancer. Mm, and what do you, so what do you think about if, if we did start regulating or having more warnings around these ads, what do you think it could look like? I, I mentioned the example of, you know, um, a similarity to the alcohol ads, but what do you think that kind of warning could look like? What would be effective messaging? <laughs> 
Look, I, I really do think it is around the acceleration of harm that these that is associated with these products, both both in terms of skin aging, uh, which is that cosmetic element, which may be very uh, of concern to those typical users, but also more importantly than that, that it accelerates the skin damage process. And, and from that point of view, if consumers are making informed choices about using that product, well, at least they are aware of those risks. But there is no restriction around that at this present time. You're listening to Hack on Triple J. I'm Ange McCormack speaking with Melissa Mason, who started this petition about banning ads for tanning products, sorry. And I'm also with Craig Sinclair from uh, Cancel Council Victoria. On the Triple J text line, Andrea from WA says, after hearing about Natalie Fornasia's death, I booked my first skin check in two years. Although I've always been sun smart, I feel like we need updated regulations and awareness. Thanks for that text, Andrea. Andrea there is talking about Natalie Fornasia, 28-year-old Sydney woman. Woman. We learnt about her death this week. She It was a tragic passing. She battled with melanoma for years and she was a really fierce advocate. Mel, was hearing Natalie's story part of your motivation this week to start the petition? I know you're familiar with her story. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of, you know, I suppose, yeah, in a way, because I think I've, Natalie's story has always stuck with me. I've known about it for quite a few years and, you know, we um, knew each other on Instagram, but we weren't friends. We'd never met, but I'd obviously followed that story for a long time. And it's definitely had an impact over those years that I've known about it. It sort of sat in the back of my mind. It was kind of like a big push for me to really consider, like I was always a sunscreen person, but, you know, I maybe wasn't always like, you know, I, I invested in like a, a beach umbrella and things like that, like things to, to really keep the sun off me um, mm. as much as possible when I'm exposed to it for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. And But then it's sort of, you know, like that was something that she had campaigned for for so long and, you know, it, it feels like she would want this story to keep going and she would really want to continue down a road where we really take melanoma seriously, take skin cancer very seriously and, and sort of cut off this constant generational resurgence of sun tanning as a trend. Absolutely. And Craig, just quickly, we don't have too much time before we hit the news, but for people that are listening right now and are concerned about their skin and skin cancer and melanoma as they should be, what are some things they should look out for or warning signs and messaging you have around getting their skin checked? Yeah, it's really looking out for those spots that are changing in shape, colour and size. They're the, they're the things that we need to alert for. And to certainly go and see your local family GP in the first instance. If we're aware of our skin and we're aware of the changes that are occurring in our skin, then we can make melanoma highly preventable. Um, and that's the great benefit of this, uh, of, of prevention, is that we can detect it early. So, Changes in, in shape, colour or size and those spots is really important to look out for. Thanks for that message, Craig, and thank you for your time. And thanks, Melissa Mason, as well, for your time. Hack on Triple J.